Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, as we come to your word today, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I ask that I'd not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that, Holy Spirit, you would be the one to teach and lead us into all truth. I pray that what is done today would have a transforming effect on our lives, that as we study your word and the truth of it, our minds would be renewed in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in our study of Ephesians, we've seen that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and it's because of Christ Jesus. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit as the down payment or guarantee of our inheritance. So in the verses that we're going to look at today, we're going to see that Paul not only gave thanks for those at Ephesus, he also prayed for them. Let's pick it up in verse 15 of Ephesians 1, as Paul says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul had been brought to thanksgiving because of them, and he'd also been brought to continued prayer because not only did the Ephesians have faith in Jesus, but that faith was really being confirmed by their love acted out towards others who also trusted in Jesus. Notice their love was shown to all of the saints, and that word for all there in the Greek is pass, P-A-S, and it means without exception. So why would their love for one another be so important? It really is because Jesus had said that our love for other Christians is really proof that we belong to him. And if you want to look at that, it's found in John 13, verses 34 to 35, where Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul knew their faith was genuine because of their obedience to that command that Christ had given. Now, I want to point out that the word that he uses for love there in the Greek is the word agape, meaning God's kind of love. This kind of love isn't necessarily the same as natural affection. It's rather an unconditional love, and it involves a choice of our will. Agape love is only possible as we allow the Holy Spirit to work within us in order to produce it. Christ's church needs to be unified and connected by his love. That being said, though, I want to say it is possible that you might find yourself not liking someone down at church. And one of the best things that I can really recommend if you find that to be true is that you start praying for them and not in a vengeful way, not saying, oh, God, deal with them. No, rather pray for God to bless them and that he would help them to become the kind of person he wants them to be, just as you need his help 
help to become the kind of person you need to be. We've got to remember that not everyone at church is in a relationship with Jesus yet. And all of us are broken in some way. In some respects, yes, we've been instantly made brand new when we trust in Christ. But in other respects, we take time to fix. If you think about it, think of Lazarus in John chapter 11, because he was raised from the dead by a single word from Christ. And we too may have been raised from the dead by Jesus, and we might have been called out of the tomb. But unwrapping the grave clothes often takes some time. And it really is something that has to be done in community. And for that, we'll have to depend on the Holy Spirit to help us to show the kind of love that God wants us to show to one another. So knowing that their love for Christ is genuine, Paul gives thanks to God for them and he prays for them unceasingly. He prays in verse 17, saying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may he give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Now, I realize that that might seem to be the longest sentence many of us have ever read, but let's go on and break up what Paul said to his friends, the believers in Ephesus. His first request was that God the Father give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And the wonderful thing is the word give in the text that he uses is didomi in Greek. And it means to give based on the decision or the will of the giver alone. So this word there's, has no idea of the recipient meriting the gift. So whether we deserve it or not, whether those Ephesians deserved it or not, Paul asked God to give them the Holy Spirit in increasing measure so that they would have wisdom and revelation in their knowledge of him. Now, the Greek word there for revelation is a wonderful one. It is apocalypsis, and it really means to reveal something or to lift the cover off of something that was previously hidden. Think of it this way. If you come home from work and the smell of a wonderful dinner fills the house, you might have great anticipation, but it's only when the lid of the pot is lifted that you actually see the delicious food that it contains. And that's really the picture in this Greek word. Paul requests that the Father uncovers what might have previously been hidden to them about Jesus Christ, that they would have a correct and a complete knowledge of him for who he is. Paul wants the eyes of their understanding to be enlightened. In other words, he wants them to clearly see God's path so that they could walk in it. 
When we decide to follow Christ, at first, we may still have ideas about ourselves and also about the Lord that are limited and wrong. We have to realize that often we've lived far away from God for years, and while we were immersed in sin and in the world, it formed the way we think. And it takes time for us uh, to renew our minds according to God's word, to change our understanding of how life works. Now, Even if you're one of those people who've walked with Jesus from a very young age, even so, the world and the media may be affecting you more than you think. God must shed his light in our minds as well as in our hearts. So with this in mind, Paul prays in verse 18 for three things, that those in Ephesus would know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. So let's look at these three requests closer. The first thing is that a Christian should know the hope of Christ's calling. For those who respond to God, his calling carries with it an extraordinary hope. Now, in everyday life, you and I often talk about hope, don't we? But we often speak of it as being a desire for something that we're really not sure about. For example, we might say, I hope my family will come at Christmas, or perhaps if you've got a difficult family, family member, you might say that you're hoping your relative really doesn't come for Christmas. But in this example, hope is something we desire. It's um, something wished for. Even though it may be likely, though, it is not fully certain. But in scripture, the Greek word used for hope is elpis, and it means the joyful and confident expectation the certain anticipation that we shall have what has been promised us in Christ. In Christ, we've been called into the Father's presence, and there is nothing doubtful about this. But we need God to give us the spirit of wisdom to help us to begin to fully understand just what it is that he has given to us in Jesus. The second thing that Paul prays for is that they, and of course you and I, would grasp what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now notice, Paul is not asking for God to show us the glory of our inheritance in him, but rather Paul is asking that we be helped to understand the glory of God's inheritance in us. Now, I'm sure most of us have never thought about this before, but God says he has an inheritance in the saints, in the believers, in us. Think about an inheritance. An inheritance is a treasure that makes our hearts glad. Do you realize that God sees you that way? When God looks at you, he sees his treasure. Do you see why we shouldn't think that we're worthless or anything less than accepted in the beloved? As his people, we fill God's heart with joy. You are his precious possession once you are covered by the blood of Christ. 
Paul wants those in Ephesus to understand that not only the certainty of God's promises toward them, the hope that they have in Christ, but he also wants them to understand how God sees them and how they're valuable to him. And you and I should be praying in a similar way for one another. The third thing Paul requests of God is that his people would know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul is clear that the power of God at work in us is the very same power that he used to raise Christ Jesus from the dead. And just as the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, he is able to give us new life also. Nothing is impossible for him. He is able to completely transform us and he's able to give us new life for he is above all else. In verse 21, Paul goes on to say that Jesus is seated in heavenly places. He is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So nothing supersedes him and nothing ever will. He's the same in this age and in the one to come. Jesus does not change. Verse 22. And he, God the Father, put all things under his, meaning Christ's, feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus has authority and the Father made Jesus head over all things concerning his church. Let me just say here, the church is not somewhere you go on Sundays. It is not a building. The church is something you are. The word church refers to the whole body of Christians scattered all over the world. The reality is, though, that many people may say that they're part of the church when they're not. I remember Corrie Tenboom's father always told her, Corrie, just because a mouse is in the cookie jar does not make the mouse a cookie. The church are those people who willingly choose to submit to Jesus Christ as their Lord. The church is made up of the individuals who have surrendered to him. And just as every part of your body is important to you, each one of us is part of his body and is important to him as our head. Now, before we move on here, I want you to look back into verse 20. Do you see there we're told that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he was seated in the heavenly places at God the Father's right hand. And there's something very important here in the fact that he was seated. All of the Old Testament worship rituals pointed to Jesus, but we're told that Jesus is not only our perfect sacrifice, he is also our great high priest. He's the one whom the high priest of old foreshadowed. Now, in the Old Testament temple, there was nowhere for the high priest, or in fact, even any of the other priests, to sit down. 
Why was that? Well, it was because their work was never done. The animal sacrifices that they used to offer could never take away sin fully. These had to be offered again and again and again, and so the work of the old high priest was never finished. But in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, where the writer compares the priests of the old priesthood to Christ, our great high priest, He says, or they say, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, meaning Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Do you remember when Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. Well, indeed, the work of reconciling man to God was finally completed. And because of the perfect nature of Christ's sacrifice, our high priest, Jesus, has now sat down. Ephesians 1.20 says that God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, and That tells us a lot because in those days when a person of high rank sat someone next to him on his right-hand side, that position signified that the individual was recognized as having equal honor and equal dignity to the host. So this really is about Christ being equal to the Father. Jesus is not only in authority over all his people, the church, but he also fills each one of us according to that final phrase there in verse 23. Now, as we go into chapter 2, it's really important to understand that the original text had no chapters or headings or even verses in it. These have all been added later as a way of us referencing the text more easily. So I'm going to go back into verse 22 and I'm going to read across the chapter division so that you get the flow of what Paul was saying in the original letter. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also... We all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. This is spoken directly to each of us. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Before we received life in Christ, yes, we may have been breathing, but we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. That word for trespasses is paraptoma, meaning to turn away or to slip from the truth or to slip from morality. Sins is the word hamartia, and it means to miss the mark. So when we lived in that way, we were spiritually dead and separated from God because we deviated from his righteousness and we'd missed the mark of his perfection. 
Before giving our lives to Christ, we followed the customs and the pattern of the world around us. And in so doing, whether we fully understood it or not, we followed the ruler of this world, Satan, who is, by the way, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. That was the pattern of our life before. It was the way in which we used to walk before we accepted the truth of the gospel. Do you see how verse 2 says that we once walked in that way? The Greek word for walk there in verse 2 is peripateo, and it means the day-to-day conduct of your life. So that's important because... There will be times as Christians that we sin, but honestly, if we sincerely repent and ask God to forgive us, the scriptures are clear, we will be forgiven. But if sin is the day-to-day pattern of your life, if you walk in sin every day, you know you have a problem because it really proves that Jesus Christ is not your Lord. He's not in charge of your life. Really, we once walked in sin, but that is not the pattern of our life any longer. Once, whether we knew it or not, and honestly, most of us likely didn't, we followed Satan, the one who even now works in the sons of disobedience. These people are the ones who don't want God interfering in the way that they live. They live in stubborn um, conflict with God's will. Now, most of them would not believe that Satan is energizing them, but he is the prince of this world. And when we followed the ways of the world before coming to Christ, we were all focused on filling, fulfilling our own desires. The, the wrath of God was upon us, but that's no longer true of those of us who are in Christ, because on the cross, Jesus took God's wrath for sin upon himself and he set us free. According to verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath, but now by grace we are children of God. So before I came to Christ, I must tell you, when I used to read the scriptures, which was very rarely, I would always feel absolutely terrified. Each time I read anything in the Bible, I felt like God's wrath was on me. And no wonder, because scripture says before accepting Christ, I was by nature an object of wrath, just as I was dead in my transgressions and sins. But verse 4 starts off, but God. Don't you love those words? But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So dead in trespasses and sin, we walked in the ways of the world as those who faced justifiable punishment. And yet, even then God loved us. So great was his love that he made a way, mercifully making us alive in Christ. 
We've been reborn and only the grace of God could accomplish that. Did you notice that verse 5 clearly states that we have been made alive together with Christ? This is not something we can do for ourselves. The transformation from death to life is only something that can be accomplished together with Christ. According to verse 6, We're seated in Christ in heavenly places. In other words, we share his dignity and his authority even now as a foretaste of future triumph. And in verse 7, it really reminds us of the fact that God has a future plan and his glory will extend throughout the ages. The key in all of this, though, is the riches of his grace and his kindness to us in Christ. Nothing can be accomplished separate from Jesus. Now look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, there's an important progression in this well-known verse of scripture and we really need to pay attention because everything starts off with grace. We are saved through faith in Christ when we trust in him and are rescued from the world and the prince that rules it. We are saved from the judgment of God, from his wrath, salvation is the gift of God, and a true gift is not a gift if you have to earn it. This has nothing to do with our good works. We cannot earn God's favor through what we do. However, having received his favor, we are to then work for him out of gratitude and love, out of adoration. There are things that God has already prepared for each one of his beloved children to do. But make no mistake, we do not work to become sons. Rather, we work for God because we are sons. And a son is always about his father's business. A Christian will live a changed life, but not because they're compelled to by legalism. No, they're going to live a transformed life because in the adoption process, they've been cut off from their old family and from their old way of life. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for all that you've said to our hearts. And we pray, Lord God, that we would be able to walk in the truth of what you've said to us today. Lord, let us bring you glory. Let us do works that honor your name, but not in order to earn your favor. We have it in Jesus Christ. Let us yield to his lordship and then serve you out of gratitude. And let it all be for the glory of your name and the extension of your kingdom. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.